and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I'm the entertainment editor at The Verge. My name is Liz Lopato, and I am the science editor at The Verge. And we wanted to follow up from last week's conversation because we had talked at length about The Martian, a movie that was not out yet and which both of us were very interested in seeing, uh, particularly because of recent discoveries vis-a-vis Mars. And um, did you see it? I, you, you know, actually, I was planning to, and then I saw that all of these people who I really respected didn't like the movie, and so I oh. I skipped it. Okay, so, uh, uh, spoiler alert, but I'm not alone. <laughs> uh, you are not alone at all. Wait, who else did it? People at The Verge? Because we, I mean, uh, Brian, I, I talked to Brian after, uh, Brian Bishop, who uh-huh. reviewed the movie for us afterwards, and um, he was generally, he generally liked it. Um, no, but, it wasn't uh, People at The Verge, it was science writers, actually. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, so, you know, some of them, I mean, some of them were positive, but, like, only sort of lukewarm positive. It was not, and... Even if it had been a bad movie, if I had been guaranteed some very cool space explosions, I probably will see it eventually, you know? But uh, it didn't sound like there was going to be at least that level of spectacle going on. I think I like you as a science editor, Liz, because despite as much as you know about about space and about, you know, real hardcore scientific facts about how space exploration and discovery works, you still want space explosions. Always. Every movie should have a space explosion. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, convey my opinion about this movie by asking you about the opinions of science writers, because I'm actually also very curious about what other science writers thought about this movie. So were they, was it the science that was disappointing to them? No, it was actually the drama. Um, okay. All right. All right. Okay, cool. You know, as a group, like, I I know we can sometimes be fuddy-duddies, like, oh, the science of that movie doesn't really work. That, like, happens for, like, any movie that contains science. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, most of us get artistic license, and we're willing to forgive, like, for instance, you know, you're willing to forgive 2001 A Space Odyssey for having noises in space, even though there is no noise in space. You know what I mean? Like, you just allow it. It's a movie. Mm-hmm. It's artistic license. That's fine. Um, you can write the piece of, like, here is how the science really works, or yeah. here, is, here is what it's really like. But, I mean, that people do understand that the, these are artistic works and that they should be judged on their artistic merits. And I just, I heard people were, got really hyped and then were just disappointed. Yeah, so... Um... I mean, it's very it's very pretentious sounding, but the thing that I just like was in my head the entire time after leaving the movie, and it's it's something similar to what we talked about. I I think I I had an inkling I might feel this way about the movie, but I wasn't expecting to be as disappointed on this term though. Was that you shouldn't send a programmer to do a poet's job? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I mean I I. Again, I, I think I said this before I saw the movie too. Like all of those, all of the 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 researched sort of suppositional stuff about how things would work if you were stranded on Mars and how you would make do, how would you, how you would grow food and stuff, is very interesting to me. And I would like to read it as a research paper, a report, or something, an essay. Uh, but I mean, this this movie is just missing any. There are a couple. There are a couple exceptions. I'll, I'll give it that. The 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 this the kind of climax when they finally go back and retrieve him. Spoiler alert: they get him. He, oh he, no! He doesn't, he doesn't die on Mars, you guys. Uh, it, that's exciting and kind of like very gripping in a way that's 
kind of ex- it gets the, gets to that existential happy place that I like in all, all the best space movies. But um, and there's like a there's a weird and emotional beat where it seems like, oh, my God, does Matt Damon miss Mars? Does Matt Damon want to go back to Mars? Which is interesting. Um, but for the most part, I mean, they just skip over. I feel like any of the real human reaction that one would have towards being stranded on Mars by yourself, um, which I feel like would be a major thing, something that you'd really have to sort your entire notion of reality, uh, resort it uh, for a while. And I think, you know, his his character is supposed to be very um, analytical, very systematic, and and, and that's the point, is that, you know... you come up against a problem and you solve it and you you solve solve all the sub problems and that's how you get through something which is great if you're a computer um but i feel like they they he he's a little too much towards that end of things and in lieu of seeing him really go through something really deep and 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 profound in his predicament uh we get a lot of jokes we get a lot of nerd jokes um get a lot of what I what I call science with an exclamation point jokes. That's funny. So, okay. So, one of the things that I heard that also turned me off was that it was basically like I fucking love science the movie. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, man, like that's not what I go to the movies for. Yeah. I mean, uh- and I feel bad because it's like if you're a kid and you see this movie, then that's great. Like, it'll probably get you really excited about science, like, in a way that going to a science museum or something would. But it's not necessarily what I want out of a movie. And I and also, I feel like the line that Neil deGrasse Tyson... Neil deGrasse Tyson, of course, loves this movie, like, because it gets everything right, um, and loves the line uh, uh, that I am going to science the shit out of this. And that that line is very... That's, like, the the... the, the prime example of what I'm talking about with science exclamation point. Yeah. Um, but also, it has a, there's a bad word in that. So kids shouldn't be quoting that. So it's not for kids. <laughs> it's for adults who like want to think about science in meme-like terms, which I feel like I need being an idiot about science. Like, I still, I, I feel like I still want to feel a sense of reverence about um, any, any, any anything related to it or anything related to, you know, these amazing discoveries or experiences that people can have when they're studying uh, stuff that's sort of on the on the the edge of of our knowledge of the universe. Um, yeah. You know, know, one of the things that I think that people really struggle with um, and then I see this in science stories, too, is how to convey the sense of wonder that often comes with especially space discoveries. Right. Like. Um, to some sense, if you're the expert in a specific area, I'm thinking of like the New Horizons photos, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a um, uh, a misunderstanding, I suppose that you would call it, where the lead on the project was like, "We're going to get amazing photos," and NASA had to be like, "Actually, they're going to just be photos." But to him, all the photos are amazing, right? Like, right. there's no... It, like, every baby is beautiful for him. They're all his beautiful <laughs> babies. And sometimes it's it's hard to get people who are maybe not as familiar with um, how difficult this stuff is engaged. And so often what people will resort to 
is memes or jokes mm-hmm. or things that I personally kind of find condescending. I think yeah. that most people do have access to their sense of wonder. I don't think that that got clipped at adulthood, you know? And that actually seems like the thing that should be easiest, like, uh, you know, especially if you're working in this sort of Spielbergian style of filmmaking that The Martian is made in, that should be the thing, that's the cheap shot. <laughs> you should yeah. go for it. Like, it's, it's actually harder to get, I think, people engaged in making, you know, potatoes out of shit. Uh, that's, that's, that's a little more on the, I mean, so I, in that in that, like intellectually, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they went for that and then went into that detail and stuff, but I just feel like it's missing. All those facts are great, but not if they don't get people like really, I think moved or, or inspired by it. I don't think there's anything particularly inspiring about it, despite how insane the feat at the central feat of it is. It's not that inspiring. Well, so two things. The first is that the other thing that gave me pause about the movie is that I kept seeing it compared to that Tom Hanks movie with the, the volleyball, which I uh-huh, love. Castaway. <laughs> yeah, I hated that movie. So I was like, this is not something I'm going to enjoy. Okay, this is not going to be Moon. Right, right. Uh, but then the other thing was... I've been at a science writers conference. We're on the same coast. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm on the east coast in Boston. I'm at a science writers conference, and one of the things that I see over and over again when I'm talking with writers is a lot of times they'll present me facts, uh-huh. and the facts are cool. Don't get me wrong, but I write stories and I publish stories, and I need you to put a spine of a story in a pitch so that you know. The facts are the rib cage, basically, right. the, the rest of the skeleton. But you need to have that story in order to make the thing stand. And what I'm hearing you say is that you felt like there were a lot of very cool facts, but the storytelling wasn't great. Yeah, no, not. I, I think it's all all in the writing and the characters. I mean, not that I need to know like an incredibly deep backstory on everybody involved, but I just like it didn't seem like there was much there. Um, but. We should we should move on because I, I promised I was only going to talk about that movie a little bit, and every time I start thinking about it, I'm like, oh, why why weren't you better movie? Um, so you know to go to move on to another sort of meme, <laughs> a human meme, a human meme. There's Elon Musk. <laughs> there uh, is who, Elon Musk. <laughs> he exists. Uh-huh. Elon Musk is a human being who exists, and for we those accept of you- these facts. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, he's the CEO of SpaceX. He also runs Tesla Motors. And he kind of has this cult of personality that I have never understood. And just to transition seamlessly, um, he announced this idea to nuke Mars on the Stephen Colbert show, the late show with Stephen Colbert, whatever whatever that yeah. is, um, in order to induce climate change, basically. And he's, he's saying, oh, well, now he's saying, I don't want to nuke the surface, just the sky over the poles. <laughs> Oh, okay. That's that's way less super villainy. I I feel much more comfortable with you now, Elon. What a good idea. Um, you know, and then like his whole idea is that that would then warm up the planet and turn any frozen carbon dioxide into gas, um, creating the greenhouse gases that would absorb and trap heat, making Mars a little bit less cold. Okay. Wait. Um, so this is so that we can go to Mars. This yeah, isn't he to wants fight. To this isn't to affect Mars. anything on our planet. No. This is so that Mars is more habitable. Right, because he wants to colonize Mars. Because, uh, yeah, he's given up on Earth. 
Well, I mean, I, I, this guy, like, I, I, so he's got this incredible cult of personality. I'm going to get so much hate mail after this episode, I'm sure. <laughs> I get hate mail every time I write anything that's even a little bit negative about him. Um, but, he, I mean, to me, it's very much like a mad scientist plan. Like, oh, we're going to go nuke Mars, you know? And, like, the thing that I don't really get about it, I guess, is, like, the place that he came from was PayPal. Um, he, uh... Basically, that's where he got his fortune um, when PayPal was acquired by eBay. Um, he got about $165 million or so. Um, and yeah. so from there, he, he transitioned into uh, Tesla and SpaceX. Um, I forget which one's older. I think SpaceX might actually be older. Oh, I think really? It might be 2001, and I think Tesla is 2003. Okay. Um. And, of course, Tesla appeals, again, to the I-fucking-love-science people because Tesla, there's this whole Tesla-Edison rivalry about the two kinds of power, and people feel that Tesla was really done wrong by Edison, who was more successful. Tesla is like the alt version of Edison. Right. Yeah, I was into Tesla before he was cool. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, they were both kind of monsters, to just be real about it. Like, neither of them were especially great guys, uh, as many... Many people who have important accomplishments are are not always wonderful human beings. And if you don't believe me, go read some biographies. I think you'll you'll find them shocking. I sure did. Um, so there's this there's like he has some sort of capture, I think, on on people's imaginations. Uh, maybe in part because of the internet background, uh, but also because right. of the idea of electric cars and the idea of going to space. Like all of those things sort of nest very closely together in terms of interests for some people. Right. And they're very they're very aspirational and I think optimistic at their core um, areas of, of interest. Uh, you know, space exploration and and having clean energy. Those are very um, I think those are very fundamentally positive things. But then, yet at the center of it, you have this person who sort of has positioned himself as this supervillain, which is sort of the opposite of that. Right. Um, and like the thing too that I worry about, and I've talked about this before on Vergecast um, and elsewhere is that he is essentially the CEO of two companies, which is an almost impossible position to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, to say nothing of the, you know, the work that he's doing with SolarCity, his, his, I mean, he's not, I don't think he's the CEO of that, but, you know, it's also his company. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess, I guess what I, I feel like is, you know, <laughs> I think he lacks, I think he lacks focus and I think he has a great deal of enthusiasm and a great deal of money and whether you enthusiasm and money are enough to get things done. I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, he's, it, it sort of makes sense when, when, uh, when Kanye West talks about, you know, idolizing Elon Musk. I mean, they're very actually similar in a lot of ways. I think I, I, I am more, uh, entertained and and sympathetic towards Kanye's personality oh, or Kanye's version of it but it's still that like that uh I mean it's it's fundamentally like just curiosity which is a good thing it's a great thing uh and and enthusiasm for a wide range of pursuits um but there's also you know with that comes a little bit of hubris as far as like oh I can do this like there's a lot me personally there's lots of things I would I would love to get into and um and and be good at or or pursue professionally um 
and I don't for a second think that I could do 90% of them. Right. Uh, <laughs> but you're also not fabulously wealthy is the yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not fabulously wealthy. I haven't people had people telling me be telling me every day that I'm a genius, not yet anyway. Uh <laughs> Well, so, Emily, I'll just put that in my calendar. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um <laughs> So there's there's sort of I I don't have that expectation or that I guess that buildup that maybe somebody like Elon Musk does have, where it's like, oh, yeah, this is within reach for you. You can well, blow up Mars. You know, <laughs> I, I also see this a lot with people who are really smart in one arena um, and think that that will translate to everything, and it doesn't, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, well, that happens in entertainment constantly. constantly. <laughs> like anybody, You who... see the actresses who are the actors and actresses who put out albums, and you're like, yeah. but you're not a singer, Or direct Johansson. movies. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't, I mean, I, I, at the same time, I don't want to discourage, especially, I think more so in, cre- in a creative field, I don't want to discourage people from doing whatever they can if they have the means to. Like, it's our job to filter through and decide what's good and what isn't. Um, and I, I don't think anybody should be stopped from, from making whatever they want to make. No. Uh, but, yeah, I feel like when you, I, I, I don't know. I mean, how, like, what, what is the likelihood that, that, that Elon Musk could ever, um, or, or that 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 we even end up doing anything with Mars or colonizing Mars. I feel like it's very, very small. But does he know that? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and so the other thing, the other question, of course, is like, should we? Like, is this something right. that seems reasonable to do at all? Is this something that seems reasonable to to put resources in? And you know, especially having thought about this for a while, like how well adapted we are to our environment. There's a certain amount of almost denialism of what kind of animals we are mm-hmm. that's involved in wanting to colonize Mars, I think. Like, there's this idea that, you know, we should expand and take over the entire solar system, which in some sense is admirable, but in another sense it's like, well, we're really well evolved for this habitat, and what you would need to recreate the things that we need for survival and wellness in those relatively inhospitable places is pretty staggering, and yeah. so many things can go wrong, and you're so far away. This isn't like, you know, because I, th- I think people sometimes think of it as just being an extension of the various kinds of colonialism that we've seen right. in the U.S., which has not been necessarily <laughs> all entirely good for anybody. Right. Um, but at least there aren't Native people that we're going to wipe out on Mars. Um, yeah. But on but, the other hand, you know, the, it seems likely that we would wipe ourselves out trying to do it. And we could just contaminate an entire planet with our germs also. <laughs> yeah, totally. Who knows? I mean, we may have already done that, actually. Yeah. Because it's no, really, really hard to get um, bacteria off of all of the space probes and things. And they do their best. They try very hard. But, you know. Yeah, there's a thing. Uh, planetary protection. I know about this. It's like a whole <laughs> department of NASA for, for decontamination. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that we don't infect other planets, which is such an awesome job to have. Uh, germ control for interplanetary germ control. Um, I hope they're listening to this and that somebody emails and offers to be interviewed about how interplanetary germ control works, because uh, that would yes. rule. I think I think I might be able to hook that up. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, we should uh, we should chat also about. Uh, the smart pill thing while we're oh god so yeah i mean while i'm i'm on my future is terrible kick yeah it's it's so this is a thing actually that uh russell brandom put on the site for us um and it's um 
this this pill essentially that has gone that's now um, being accepted for review by the FDA, which doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be sold. But what's what's inside this pill is a um, sand grain sized, um, I guess I guess robot. I don't know how best to describe it. Just a like this tiny little sensor, almost. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like you know, um, that's made from copper and magnesium and silicon, all those good things. And then when it hits your stomach, the acids create a circuit uh, with the the things that are on the, this grain powering up the microchip there, um, which will then later dissolve after about five minutes. But before that happens, the chip. Uh, sends out electrical pulses, which can then be picked up uh, by a patch uh, stuck to the skin near your belly button, uh-huh. uh, and then transmits it to the smartphone, which lets your doctor know that you have taken your pill. <laughs> you've you've been obedient. Yeah, right. So this is this is exactly the issue. Um, there are a lot of conditions where patients don't take their medicine, and sometimes they're chronic conditions like heart conditions. Um, because it's not clear that the statin you're taking is absolutely preventing your heart attack, even though you you know we have the data that suggests it is. It's 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 tough to motivate people to do things that they don't necessarily get an immediate result for. Right. But what worries me about this is that the um, the drug that they're initially filing with is uh, an antipsychotic, um, and antipsychotics for those of you who don't know, are really powerful drugs. Uh, and they're usually used for, for conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And they do work for those conditions. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that these medicines are, you know, in any way <laughs> yeah. uh, bad for the conditions where they're meant to be used. But they but could one be the... overprescribed at times in certain right. cases. Right, sure. Yes, absolutely. And the thing that worries me, because I, you know, as you, as you know, I used to cover pharma and biotech, um, a lot of these antipsychotics are actually used in institutional settings like uh, prisons and nursing homes. And they, that, that's where the overprescribing um, risk comes into play because sometimes, again, not always, there are probably plenty of people who are lovely and virtuous and upstanding at these places, but um, they're sometimes used as a method of behavior control for people who are not actually mentally ill. Right. And so the idea of coercing somebody into taking their pill really frightens me a lot. I think that there's a lot of potential for abuse of this kind of thing. Um, and again, it's not that I don't see the upside, you know. Uh, particularly, I, I'm thinking of like, you know, people who have maybe elderly parents um, or people who have Alzheimer's, for instance, and can't remember whether they took their medicine in the morning or not. There might be reasons why this makes sense, but... There are also reasons to be very cautious and very hesitant about it, especially when it's being put into something like an antipsychotic rather than something like a statin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, it's also so easy to to rely on something like an antipsychotic to do a part of a job that you don't want to do in a, in a institutional setting. Um, if you don't want to actually work with somebody and 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 try to help them through a problem or 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 give them you know quality. Ther- therapy or counseling or anything. You can or the company that owns it just hasn't staffed up enough people to actually deal yeah, with people yeah. with behavioral problems. It's much easier to just sort of knock people out. Mm-hmm. And make sure uh, that they've been knocked out. <laughs> right. And that's what worries me. Yeah. Um, the potential for abuse. 
So how how close is this to being a a a part of uh, our prison industrial <laughs> complex? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, hopefully it'll be too expensive. <laughs> right. That sounds like a lot. I mean, that sounds more expensive than just hiring more staff, right? Like, yeah. I mean, it sounds a little. It sounds like something that would appeal to laziness, but ultimately would not be economically feasible. Well, well, not not right now. Right, yeah. But remember, you know, laptops were not economically feasible for quite some oh, time, we'll and now they're sort of standard. <laughs> one for every one for every employee at Fox Media. Craziness. <laughs> um, or, or you know, you remember? So I've been rewatching the X Files because the, the there's been um, HD versions that have come oh, out. Oh right, yeah. And so I've been looking at the old cell phones that they have, the huge bricks mm-hmm. that were cutting edge at the time. And thinking about, like, the tiny little thing that I'm even now recording this podcast right. on. <laughs> and, yeah, there was a time when, you know, in the 90s where it was like, yeah, cell phones are fine for fancy people, but I'll never have one. <laughs> and, like, look at me now. Yep. So that, that you know, it seems like it's probably going to be a way off yeah. before this becomes something that is really going to be concerning. But I think it's also worth thinking about right now so that we can maybe implement safeguards um, so that those those worries of mine yeah. the, that this can be a way of abusing power just don't come to pass yeah well people 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 will find a way if, if this is our if this is our uh, uh, future sucks uh, edition of the podcast I'll just say <laughs> everybody will one thing that you can know about the future is that people find a way to abuse power but um, well I mean that's the whole point of Philip Dick's work yeah. right like you know the future everything like all the technology is amazing and everybody still sucks yeah. and people are maybe even more miserable possibly yeah um, <laughs> well I mean <laughs> if we want to transition into the past Ooh. Ooh, uh, I've been where people I've, were also miserable. I understand. Yeah, uh, so I've been <laughs> I've been binging on the second half of the Nick. I I, I watched the first half of it. This is a, the Cinemax show uh, that was that's um, produced and directed by Steven Soderbergh. Um, Steven Soderbergh, who has um, sworn off film to pursue television, and this is good for him. This is his uh, his follow your heart. Yeah, um, I. Uh, I mean, this show is highly entertaining. I I watched the first several episodes when it came out, um, which was, I guess, about a year ago, and uh, could not get through it because it was so gross. Uh, (laughs) It was so gross. I I, I had a similar problem to uh, with it that I did when I first started watching Dexter when that came out. Like, I I got a free DVD of like the the first season. I remember. Um, way back, way back, whenever that show started, I'm like, oh, cool. Uh, I've heard of this show. I'll watch it while I have my dinner, and it that was just not a good idea. And the same, the same thing goes for the Nick. You cannot, maybe a salad, maybe a salad. Nothing with meat in it. Don't eat anything with meat in it while you're watching the Nick. Um, but the Nick, uh, is uh, it's in, it takes place in a hospital. Wikipedia says it is inspired by. The Knickerbocker Hospital, which is a, a, a New York hospital in Harlem around the turn of the century. Um, and the first season takes place in the year 1900. And um, it's sort of as the dawn of modern surgery and, uh, and, uh, and, and a lot of our understanding of medicine now was sort of beginning, but still at its very, very nascent 
stage. So there are tons of bloopers. There are tons of surgery bloopers. And, um, you know, a lot of these scenes, like almost every episode has a scene in the operating theater where, you know, you've got all the all the doctors in New York are are gathered around to watch you, um, you know, try to try to remove an appendix or uh, or uh, stop a woman from dying because the the placenta has has been uh, displaced around her 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 baby uh it 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 is it is a gnarly show um my mom my mom <laughs> was gonna start watching it last night um and i was just warning her about it like there is i think the gnarliest thing on it is uh is some reconstructive surgery some 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 early reconstructive surgery oh geez. that happens on it um because of Ooh. syphilis um you know Ooh. syphilis syphilis destroys parts of your body um and, uh, you know, it was going around at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, okay. So this is actually really fascinating. Like syphilis had like this big boom. Um, it was in, the STD. It was the STD. <laughs> syphilis was the hottest STD of the 19th century. I'm actually not making this up. Um, there, there's, there's some evidence that there might've been like some, some kinds of changes to this gene that made it a little bit easier to pass. Hmm. And that's why this was a thing. But um, yeah, syphilis was a big deal and lots of people got it congenitally because, you know, their parents were infected and so they were born with it. Ah. Wow. Yeah, that I mean, it seemed like something that seemed I mean, it seems like something that was like remarkably easy to get. You may I feel like you always hear about like royalty, like like even the in medieval times and everything, people getting syphilis. Like it was just like the thing that you got. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a cold. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's a uh, there's a woman who has to have some. Oh God, I don't even want to talk about it. It's so bad. But <laughs> uh, but I, I've been watching it because the the second season is is um, is premiering this week on Cinemax. Uh, and the, the show is interesting because I think it's 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 about as prestige as a as a premium cable show gets. It's every episode is directed by Steven Soderbergh, which is um, I think a lot of what makes it so compelling it's sort of why the first season of true detective true detective was great is because carrie fukunaga directed every episode and it just had this really unified highly cinematic look to it and and i mean this show the nick looks amazing and it's all shot on location i guess they just found the most um preserved locations in new york and in brooklyn to shoot in so i mean the interiors are just like (laughs) i was actually joking a lot of a lot of it just looks like you're in a really like posh Brooklyn restaurant like a lot of <laughs> a lot of the interiors um but uh but it's it's I think some of the writing could be less clumsy on this show and especially mm-hmm. there's a reveal at the in the very last shot of the last episode that's like kind of a groaner um because our uh, Clive Owen who is uh, who plays the hero John Thackeray is is um very very destructively addicted to cocaine which is also the you know, it's an it's that was good a hot party drug at the, at the turn of the century. He's got yeah. easy access to it. Um, well, it was a, it was an early analgesic. Yeah, analgesic. Yeah. That was like how you you controlled pain was you put you got people super fucking high. Yeah, which is uh, so that's sort of the thing that's interesting to me is that you watch him like he shoot. This is not a spoiler. It happens in the first episode. He shoots cocaine like he shoots liquid cocaine, um, and it's it's really 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 gross. Um, but it's also like. It looks really hardcore and gnarly to us. Like, it, you know, it, the the optics of it is it looks like shooting up heroin or... Um, yeah. But like, culturally, it's sort of like, 
ah, just having a few Red Bulls. Like it was everywhere. Yeah. It was it was not yes. uh, it, it wasn't a controlled substance. It, it, it so yeah for fun times. Uh, if you go back through old issues of medical journals, like really old ones, uh-huh. um, you find like the genesis of some of these drugs and how they were originally used. And cocaine is one of them. Um, morphine is another, mm-hmm. and the beginnings of heroin. That's not, I don't think that's going to be until 1908. So you might not see it in the oh. You'd be surprised. <laughs> That's. I mean, maybe maybe I've got my dates on heroin wrong, but I, I think it was synthesized a little bit later than that. Um, yeah, that's sort of. I don't want to give away too much about the. Okay. In case people are still catching up, but. Okay, um, fair enough. Um, as I have not seen yeah. it, so fair enough. Uh, but you know, it. Uh, you see these medical journal papers about like extolling the virtues oh, yeah. of these controlled substances, and it's wild. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's crazy. Like. It's crazy. Like, I mean, there's a scene where there's like a there's a big riot and a lot of people are injured and and, and there's also a shortage of cocaine at the time, which is a problem for people on a number of levels. But um, <laughs> you know, I can imagine. But but you know, uh, John, or the the Clive Owen character has uh, has happened to have a little stash, and so they're trying to treat a patient. They're like, oh, we're all out of cocaine, and just tosses them some vials across the across the <laughs> emergency room. It's just it's it's just really, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, uh, yeah, the 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 way that that drugs are are treated and talked about, uh, the way that women's health is is treated, um, and and uh, and mental health in in one particularly uh, bad, <laughs> depressing scene, um, it, it's it you learn a lot on the show. I it yeah. I think it's it's a little bit. It's kind of caught a little bit of a madman problem where, you know, you've got a wide range of characters from all sorts of different walks of life that live in this time in this place. And so it kind of feels like it has to get into this sort of Ken Burns ish, like, uh, and this is the person who represents this kind of person in, 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 uh, in this world. Like, you know, we've got the, the white society girl and the, the black doctor and, uh, and the nun and, and, uh, the syphilitic orphan. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like it's like a roll call of all the kind of 1900s New York tropes. So it, it, I kind of can't help but get a little bit uh, stodgy, I guess. But it looks great. Like that—that's the main reason to watch the show is that it's so um, absorbing. And it, 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 like, I, I watched five episodes in a row <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> like, and and you just feel like you you feel like you could smell it like you feel for better or for worse you feel like you can smell <laughs> smell oh, the place and the time and um it's 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 worth checking out so speaking a little bit of history and maybe uh uh moving i i, I this is an extremely awkward transition <laughs> i apologize to everybody uh but I understand you did an interview uh, with John Seabrook. Is that yes. right? Yes. Um, so I. So tell me who he is. So John Seabrook is a he. He writes for uh, New Yorker, and um, he writes a lot about music for the New Yorker. And he has just published a book called The Song Machine, uh, which is sort of an expansion on an article he did a couple years ago um, called The Song Machine, which was about Esther Dean, the songwriter who's done a lot of oh, that article is yeah great. yeah it's a fantastic article. Um, uh, she's a she's a songwriter. She's done a lot of stuff for Rihanna and uh, Katy Perry, uh, and just sort of like you, you know you know an Esther Dean song for sure. Like uh, the only girl in the world and and Firework. Those are like two of her biggest super songs. bass. Yes, she. Yeah. I think I think she's the person singing the hook on yeah. super bass. She's like any any song when there's sort of like an onomatopoetic kind of yeah the boom 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 like like and and she did S and M too. Uh, 
it's uh, so she so it, that that article was about her kind of her rise and her career and everything and um, and her also trying to pursue a solo career as a, as a recording artist and how there's sort of certain roadblocks even for somebody as successful as she is. Um, but the book is about kind of this whole pop music uh, machine, for lack of a better word, that that exists now uh, that that creates hits for big artists and sort of the the formula that's been figured out over the years to um, be the most optimized for whatever the current uh, listening habits of people are so you know the hmm. songs songs now when when uh, you know people aren't buying records I mean everything is so much more singles, singles. oriented and and not even just singles but like down to the seconds like a seven second span of time has to have something interesting happen in it because of our our attention spans are so much vying for our attention whether it's on the radio or on spotify or anything like that so um so the book kind of tracks um it starts you know with the with the 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 first sort of group of swedish producers and songwriters who um worked with uh um ace of bass and then started doing songs for a lot of early boy bands and like uh, Backstreet Boys and um, and up and through the current day. So you see this sort of um, lineage of uh, producers and songwriters and their protégés and how they kind of pass down these um, these sort of secrets, I guess, of of what makes a pop song stick and just be something you want to hear again and again. Um, and it's it's really interesting. Uh, it's it's very wide ranging, and I think and you know you don't even necessarily have to be a pop music expert to find it interesting because invariably you will be familiar with the stuff that's being talked about in it. Um, and it's just interesting to see how that all gets made. So, yeah. Cool. Well, I can't wait to listen to this. So, yeah, um, I will be talking to John Seabrook. And just as a note, John was talking to us from his home and it was over Skype. And so there's a little bit of audio glitching in there. But um, for the most part, it should be OK. I think you can hear some children in the background, but it's just... There are characters in the book, so they make a cameo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just texture. It's sonic texture. Exactly. I am joined today by John Seabrook. He's the author of The Song Machine, which is out now. And uh, it's a really interesting book about hit making, pop songwriters, um, the entire rise of the, the Swedish uh, uh, pop music industrial complex, I guess you could call it. And um, thank you so much for joining me today, John. Sure, Emily. Good to be here. Um, so I I wanted to start actually talking about uh, another review of this book that I read that I thought was, um, it was an interesting different angle on the subject of your book, uh, which sort of painted the entire subject, uh, which is the the idea of songwriters and producers who are not the artist making songs for these pop artists um, as a kind of, uh, as a kind of, I, I think the word that was used in the review, which was in, uh, on Atlantic, uh, was charade. Right. And I thought that was interesting because I don't really think of this entire um, model of making pop music as necessarily, um, uh, I don't know, a, a scam. I feel like it's more or less transparent, but maybe that's because... I spend a lot of time researching and thinking about different pop writers and songwriters and stuff. I think that's the key right there, Emily. Yeah. That you actually know what you're talking about. Whereas a lot of people who don't really think about pop music just sort of want to believe that the artists uh, are the 
ones who write the songs, just because I think it makes the song better, because uh, it seems to come from the heart more, yeah. and, and it touches you as a more personal communication between you and the artist. And so when there's somebody else involved in that intimate connection, you kind of want them to go away, I think. Yeah. It's, um, I think, do, do you think it's changed a little bit over time as far as, um, I, I guess the key demographic of teens and especially teen girls and fans of pop music, you think they're more aware of, of how that sausage gets made or do you think it's still kind of a willful ignorance of that? Uh, based on my very <laughs> limited sample of uh, my son uh, and his reaction to all of these revelations about who writes what that I uncovered in the course of writing my book, which, of course, I was really only doing to impress him. Uh, he ended up being a little bit disillusioned <laughs> with all of this knowledge uh, of, like, you know, Max Martin's involvement in Taylor Swift's songs. Uh, and so if, if he's any indication, then, yeah, I think you still kind of want to feel like your pop heroes are the authors of their songs, you know. Yeah. I think it's na a natural tendency. Uh, and it's a little bit more sophisticated to sort of savor the, the songwriting uh, brilliance as a craft uh, and, uh, and disassociate it from, you know, the artists and the performance and, and all of that. That seems like something you develop kind of later. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, the reason I was excited about having you on this, on our podcast specifically, is that we are a podcast about art and science. And I feel like more and more the the, the craft, if, if that's the right word for it, of I think it probably is, of, of writing pop songs is, is becoming a science. And right. you talk about a couple people in there who tried to make these sort of formulas for what would make something, like what would be the the perfect sticking point for a song or or how many times you need to hear a song to repeat it. Can you talk a little bit about those? Just so, like, just... Um, yeah, totally. I, think, I forget the guy's name. It started with a Z. But uh, Zapolian. Yes, Guy yeah. Zapolian. Yeah, well, a couple people... I mean, I think basically the formula here is, first of all, you need a sound that is going to stand out from all other sounds, you know, in the world. So uh, it needs to probably be made on a computer and be an unearthly sounding thing that, you know, is completely unique. Uh, then uh, you have to design a song that is, you know it's going to be repeated again and again and again. And because you know that, you can design the song for sort of maximum effectiveness in that sort of repetitive context. And the songs that work really well in that context are the songs with a lot of hooks, mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, if you don't like it the first time, uh, you're going to hear it the second or third time, and the brain is going to become used to, uh, you know, how the notes in that hook go, and will begin to anticipate, you know, what comes next, and then when it does come next, uh, the brain gets very happy, and then you are happy. Uh, and, and so you have to design songs for, for you know, um, massive repetitiveness and also songs that will sort of cut through the noise in, in stores or, 
or stadiums or, you know, because it's not just the radio. Uh, it's also, you know, everywhere else these songs appear. And that's sort of that compression thing of how every song is just like all the loudness is up at the up on the surface now as opposed to... The quietest whispers are just as in your face as the most booming drums. Yeah. And that really makes a difference, particularly, I think, uh, in the vocal. Uh, I think that as the production has become more sort of machine-driven, uh, I think the vocal has had to become more sort of warm and human sounding. I mean, it still takes all these technologies in order to make it sound that human, but you're going for this incredibly close, intimate vocal sound. Yeah. I think in order to slightly sort of balance out the chilly sort of techno sound of, of the computers. Yeah. You know? That the whole idea about coming back to something familiar or coming back to a hook that you've you've been trained to expect after a certain amount of time listening to a song or a certain number of times listening to that song. It sort of reminds me, we had a guest on a, a, maybe a couple of months ago who was a social psychologist who, who had done a study on spoilers and how people actually do enjoy a story more, whether it's a movie or a short story, if they do know what's coming, contrary to what most people think they do enjoy. Most people want to shield themselves from spoilers or want to be surprised, but people actually get more enjoyment out of something when they know what to expect and are, are braced for it and ready for it. And I think that's really, I mean, we crave familiar things. I guess that's sort of <laughs> the nature of pop music or it always has been. And there's a distinction, though, between, of course, you know, music and film or music. I mean, music is really the only of those art forms where re repetition is actually pleasurable uh, and you can actually hear a song, you know, 50 times and still like it. Whereas if you saw a movie 50 times, you know, or even a a four-minute video 50 times, uh, I think you would get very tired of it. Uh, so, you know, music, uh, the brain uh, seems to really like the repetitive part of music, and, and I think that's partly what the people in my book are capitalizing on, that very quality uh, is, is the key to, you know, pop success. Yeah. So you so the book sort of starts talking about this group of Swedish songwriters, um, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Kron or is it Sharon? Sharon, okay. Um, and uh, that included uh, Dennis Pop, and um, who was so, sort of the mentor for Max Martin, correct? And um, you you touch on this a little bit, and I feel like this is a question everybody has, um, but just why there is such a disproportionate amount of Swedish people working in pop music and how that's been a thing for, you know, decades now. Um, you know, you, you talk about some people who say, oh, you know, any any farmer in in uh, in Sweden probably has like a, a hit song in their back pocket. Um, and that seems like a very romantic idea. That's like a very cute thing to think about. But I, I, I wonder if you did any more digging to find out any anything that seemed like concrete evidence as to why that was. There's a lot of reasons that I think are partly responsible, uh, as opposed to, like I said, one big reason. I mean, there's some sort of businessy reasons that are, are uh, the facility for English that the Swedes have, uh, um, the the infrastructure, technology-wise, for you know they're good on computers, uh, broadband is good, so song sharing over computers is something that Swedes are very adept at. 
Also public music education, uh, uh, music in schools, uh, like Max Martin uh, talks a lot about his uh, public music education and how he wouldn't be where he is without it, and we have terrible public music education, so that might be something we could learn from them. Um, also, I think, uh, if you want to go to musical sort of style, uh, I think the the yeah. R&B hybrid that the Swedes have created, dance pop started it, and Max Martin has kind of fully realized it, is this kind of rhythmic pop. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, um, I was, I'm, I'm trying to promote the concept of R&P, actually. <laughs> uh, that is the Swedish sound. Uh, and I don't think Americans would have been able to come up with it because R&B and pop in America is too balkanized, too like racially rooted, and the whole legacy of it is so sort of overwhelming in America that you know most white uh, songwriters don't write R&B. Whereas in Sweden, that's exactly what these Sharon guys were doing. You know, that's what their ambition was, and. And Stargate too, the Norwegian guys in my book, mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't really have any sort of uh, inhibition about doing that because they didn't grow up in this racially charged, you know, sort of situation where the music kind of was a symbol of these other divisions. Right. You know. So those are some reasons, uh, but also, um, you know. The, men, the strong mentorship system, which is now in, on its third or fourth iteration, uh, you know, so Dennis Popping, Max Martin's mentor, and teaching him these things, which some of which are secrets, probably, which I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then Max Martin uh, teaching them to uh, Dr. Luke, uh, who then has gone on to teach them to Benny Blanco, who's probably now teaching them to somebody else, and and it spreads, you know, uh, and and so it's just like a system that sort of works and then sort of perpetuates itself. Yeah, and it can be passed on to younger songwriters who know the new influences to bring into it, but still have this idea of this ideal structure, whatever that is, that secret thing is that's been passed down. Right, so the younger ones are, are important to the older ones. It's not just yeah, a one-way situation, because the older ones need the edgy and it sort of, you know, sound that the younger ones have in order to stay in business, really. Yeah. You know? So it's a very sort of interesting relationship. But now, I mean, now that it's become, you know, so many of those songwriters and producers and stuff are living in L.A. now, uh, a lot of their 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 mentees, I guess, are not are no longer Swedish. Uh, like Benny Blanco isn't. Uh, but but Savin Koteca, who is, I think Savin Koteca is now is on an incredible hot streak right now, and he Max's uh, mentee from Sweden. He trained with mm. Max in Sweden, and he actually married a Swede. And now he's back in uh, in L.A. and uh, I feel like Savin has just done an incredible tear. And uh, all those late, the most recent, I can't feel my face. Yes. Uh, cool for the summer. Problem. Those three, which are three of Max's recent big hits, were all done with with Savin. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, he's one to watch. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I hadn't heard his name before, but he. Yeah. 
those are those are definitely three three good ones to have under your belt. Um, I I think I I was looking around you know about the about the Swedish question. Uh, I I was looking around at some different articles and um, I, I I can't remember if you mentioned this in the book, but there was um, something about Sweden having the highest per capita membership in choirs in church choirs, which I thought was interesting. Uh, uh, and just kind of, I guess, a, which I guess comes out of a sacred music tradition. Um, and it, it's interesting how much now this sort of depersonalized um, uh, model of pop that we work with now, how much of it echoes sacred music in, in that it's not, you're no, you're no longer uh, writing a song for the glory of yourself or your emotions or your inner life. It's more songs to be shared with a huge amount of people that everybody can share a feeling about. That's um, a good idea. I think it's sort of interesting. Um, that, well, that, that's yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense because whether or not, like Max Martin spent a lot of time in um, church. Sweden has these like there's a lot of sing-alongs. Uh, yeah. And they're, you know, in school and, you know, sort of holidays and stuff. And that's the kind of music you kind of, yeah, it's, it, it's made for the group yeah. to sing. Uh, you know, it binds the group together. And it seems, it seems interesting that that's, that's the music that we gravitate towards now more, more with pop is stuff that, it's like, it's, it's a way of connecting in a, in a way, in a, in a, in a culture, I guess, that's even more decentralized than normal. But I feel like pop is pop music is one of the few real vestiges of a monoculture that's left now. Um, like I can hear somebody playing a song out of their car going down the street, and I'm like, oh, I I know that song. That person I've never met before in my life is listening to a song that I know. Um, yeah, yeah, which is that's kind true. Of, kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah, that's a poptimist. That's that's the poptimism. For sure, yeah. Am I showing my optimism? Yeah, that's the optimism talking, Emily. Yeah, um, but I agree with you, so that's good. Yeah, um, this is a completely uh, off uh, off topic question, but did you, when the cover was designed for the book, which uh, people can look it up online, and we'll probably have it a, a, a picture of it on the post for this this podcast, but did you know that it was going to look exactly like the Apple Music logo? No, it's it's weird. It, the yeah. cover was the cover was I think totally independently designed. Yeah, obviously it was. Yeah, you know, a long time before anybody saw the Apple Music logo. So yeah, I don't. It's totally strange. Unless unless maybe the cover designer. It was an out. It was an out of house. Um, it's a place called High Design, uh, and I think the guy is actually named David High. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that's his real name or not, but uh, I kind of tried to look him up because I thought it was a great design, and um, I, had, I didn't find out too much, but, you know, yeah, I think it's a weird coincidence. Yeah, I mean, you do talk about streaming music and that impact in terms of the fact that that's why people have to have these singles that are shareable and can kind of transcend the money that's been lost in the, uh, the, the fall of the recording industry. The other thing I think there, Emily, is uh, in terms of streaming and singles is you don't get paid until people listen to 30 seconds. Uh, so I feel like uh, that's only going to sort of promote like getting a hook in there you know, faster than ever. Yeah, and it's something like seven seconds that a person will give a song on the radio when they're tuning through. Like, like if there's no real grab in seven seconds, then most people will change the dial. 
so much in a lot of those Rihanna songs it's it's just all this build and then this big drop moment uh, but everything's right. everything's pointing forward though there's not really a moment where you feel like you're just sitting there and, and chilling out right like like in Max's songs like in the you know in the Taylor's songs I think that when the verses really are, are a little bit sort of throwaway uh, they're just setting up you know the chorus and you kind of have to have them structurally and, and they build up the tension but uh, but you can't it's hard to even remember the tune in in the verse of like blank space or or shake it off uh, because you know it's, it's just there for the chorus yeah I've been noticing this more and more like I, I don't I don't think this is a new thing I remember hearing this in songs when I was a kid but that trick of having the second repetition of the verse or, or, or the second verse would be half of the length of the first verse because you've already heard the chorus at that point and and you know what the good part is and so we'll rush you to that part again as quickly as possible and that happens at blind space yeah 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 well john thank you so much for talking to me today uh, my guest has been john seabrook he is the author of the song machine which is out now and thank you so much Oh, well, I think this is the end of the show. I think it is, too. (laughs) Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, You can subscribe to us, if you haven't already, on iTunes at Verge ESP. And you can also subscribe to us um, and listen to us on SoundCloud. Um, Or the podcast app of your choice. Yes. Um, You can can leave us those nice five-star reviews if you are so moved. Yeah. And you can follow us on Twitter also. Uh, I am Emily Yoshida, all one word. And Liz is Miss Lapato, M.S. Lapato, And um, we will be back in two weeks with more fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, we've got something exciting planned, so stay tuned. Bye.